There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, this is Tyler Jones, and you're listening to The Element Podcast. What's happening, all my woods people? I hope you're staying warm. We are trying... We're pretty warm in this truck right now. Fairly. Fairly warm. My legs get so cold these days, though. Yeah? Yeah, I think it's just these thin pants that I wear. You used to say your legs never got cold. I know. I think it's these thin pants, dude. Yeah. I need to put some blue jeans on or something, I guess, instead of these old man uh, windsuits (laughs) that I wear. (laughs) Uh, Bodysuit dickies, man. It's hard to stay warm in them, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I used to wear those uh, to school in high school sometimes. Yeah. When you didn't, when you violated dress code? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't really have a dress code. I mean, it's like <laughs> and, don't wear your hair to your neck, and, and um, I'm out. No, you know, violence <laughs> on your shirt or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, dude, it's uh, it's been cold around here. I mean, 45 is a high. That's it's freezing around. Tomorrow, here. the high's 39. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, golly. Man, I know. I'm gonna, hang, I'm gonna hang a deer. I tell you what. Sorry about y'all up there further north. Is all I can say. <laughs> yeah. Ain't about it. You should live in Texas. <laughs> you know, we eat jalapenos in the summer. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going deer hunting here in just a second. So we're going to keep this pretty, pretty light. But, mm-hmm. uh, I actually, uh, there's, uh, these things that we get for managed properties, um, from Texas biologists. Um, and I have a connection to somebody who gets to help manage a property and we get to shoot deer a little bit later than, uh, the season goes. So I'm pretty excited about it. I'm going to go try to shoot a doe if they're still out moving around. It's a cold day. It's overcast. So hopefully, even though it's kind of late in the morning, there'll be some moving around. We're going to try to smoke some hogs if we see them. So I might be throwing some back straps on the grill pretty oh, soon. Oh boy, howdy. I'm pretty excited, man. I I thought I was just kind of like to the point where I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to have to fish really hard this year to <laughs> fill my freezer. You know what I mean? Trot lining. That's right. <laughs> yeah. dude. I'm, I'm still going to probably, but, um, 
but hopefully this will give me some red meat to get me through mm-hmm. stew season and everything else. Stew season. Is that what, I like is that. that. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's okay. cool. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it may, maybe stew season already started, but I definitely would eat a stew today. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, uh, what else going on? Well, Man. today on the podcast, we have another fellow public land hunter yep. who isn't your... What would you say? He isn't like the guy that you see like, oh, consistently having public land success for the last 20 years from northern <laughs> Michigan. You know what I mean? Like, he's he's a real dude, man. Yeah. Uh, his name's Chad Sylvester from Exodus Outdoor Gear. We mm-hmm. uh, actually got to hang out with Chad at ATA some, and really cool, really passionate guy who, like, man, I like Chad's story because uh, it's, a, it's a story a lot of us can identify with where, like, you kind of... Um, didn't have you hit on straight when you were younger, and then man, this guy is driven and determined now, and it's like he's better for it. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's cool, man. I mean, that's kind of uh, not to get too preachy, but like, a, like in your walk, in your faith, man. That's uh, like the idea is to, for me, to sin less every day, right? Yeah. To be better, uh, and maybe they, you take a two steps back sometimes day to day, but uh, overall, like you try to become better, you try to serve more. And uh, you're becoming you're becoming a better man as you go through life, yeah. and I think that 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 story on a secular level is very sim- similar. You know, yeah, yeah. And then it, he kind of ties it into deer hunting pretty good too. Yeah, you know? yeah. like because the sucker's working his tail off on some public land where pretty much deer don't exist. Yeah, but there That's are how some I feel about our I know, I know. It's <laughs> like that going like in October sometimes. You know, like there there are deer there. Uh, in like late October and then all of a sudden like you you just have this small window where like it's so hot no deer move and mm-hmm. then there's like a cool snap in late October and your cameras light up and then uh, the rut, rut comes and you'll see some bucks here and there but it's super inconsistent and then there's a guy on your camera and then you don't see anything that's else. right yeah. you're like what in and, the world and people rage you for shooting a spike in December <laughs> and it's like listen dudes if you only understood yeah like the it's rarity January it was January, January, January 1st, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. New Year's Day. Yeah. yeah. So that actually, that video is out this week. Yeah. Uh, launched um, last week, actually. People so. have, uh, the support has been good, though. I know. Like, I was surprised after the picture that we posted of you smoking a uh, spike. Like, people were just like, had such a problem with it. And even the well, arrow sticking you know, out of it as if, like, like, you didn't shoot it with an arrow or something. Yeah, uh, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you know? Yeah. Like, I feel like maybe we've, we've had a lot of support over that, but just like a couple of sour apples, oh, yeah. you know, that yeah. just like, you're like, really, man? I mean, here's the deal. Like, I shot the deer because I wanted to shoot the deer. And yeah. That's the end of the day. And it was know? legal. Yeah. How about that? How about that? Uh, the biologists <laughs> say you should shoot deer like that, so we're going to shoot deer like that, you know. But uh, anyways, go watch the video because uh, it's cold, I'm proud dude. of it, man. Like, it was, a, it was... It was a good morning on public. It was. We like, both saw a bunch of deer. We almost both killed... We almost both killed three deer. Oh, man. <laughs> like, you had two opportunities. I had a big group of deer come in chasing, getting chased by a, a buck that might have been legal, but I couldn't tell if it had little brow tines or not. But, like, it was, it was, they were at five yards, and I almost got to kill that morning. And then you killed, and just, oh, it was such a good morning, man. Like, that doesn't happen very often no. for us on pubs. So, I was pretty, pretty excited. That was a fun video to put together whereas some of our um like plcs i'm like dadgummit dude like we had a great morning 
but there's like video footage of a doe. Yeah, you know and it's I mean? a brush. That's it. <laughs> it's like, a, wait, is that a tine? No, it's just a stick. You know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but there was a really good buck that came yeah. like sixty yards from us. Yeah. I'm sorry, y'all can't see it. You know, so it, it, I've had I've enjoyed that. Um, also, one thing I've been enjoying lately is this duck hunting video that we're gonna put out that it's weird because you know we don't talk a whole lot about duck hunting but i did get to go video one and there's a really inspiring story that one of the guys that was in the group had and told uh for this video so i'm really excited to put that out like kind of getting me back into my film game you know what i mean that i've enjoyed so much over the years so anyway excited about all that um we're going to talk to chad uh about tactics um hunting big woods public land deer and uh maybe some camera tactics as well because that's pretty natural when you're talking to a guy that knows as much as he does and like i don't know if we'll get super detailed for for some people on this on the camera thing but like chad can literally um he can spit the jargon to where you're like hey dude english please if you wanted to bust open a circuit board he'd just tell you what's on there <laughs> yeah, you know, like that's sure. what he can do yeah so he he knows it and maybe we'll do that sometime a little more like detailed like a you know uh Instead of a 101, it's a two-parter, you know, or whatever. So Black diamond. Anyway, um, yeah, let's get Chad on, I guess. I don't Sounds really know good. what else to do because I need to go hunting. All right, so now on the phone we have Chad Sylvester from Exodus Outdoor Gear. What's happening, Chad? Not too much, man. Just uh, enjoying the early morning, getting my day started. Yeah. What's going on, fellas? Not a lot, man. We're we think we're cold, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know we don't know the rest of the country. Like I've got friends, uh, some in the Midwest and stuff like that, and I'll text them about something and be like, Hey, what's going on? And they're just be like, Oh, trying to stay warm. And I'm thinking, me too, but then I realized that y'all's temperatures are like 30 degrees colder than ours are. <laughs> and depending yeah. depending on who you talk to, they really like to include the wind chill in there to like, <laughs> you know, like over accentuate how bad it is. Oh, oh yeah, dude, it's like negative 70 today. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's like, come on, yeah. we can't talk in wind chills here. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> anyway, um, so you guys are, you know, in the middle of of this cold dreary season where we're just like not uh not able to hunt much at all really i've seen some guys hunting rabbits we've hunted squirrels and small game a little bit but uh, as far as deer hunting goes which is kind of the the main point of this podcast it's uh it's pretty pretty bleak out there right now um you guys have just actually released a new camera uh how's that going for you Good man, we uh, um, just launched the the Exodus Render there. Uh, it's been about two weeks now, which is our our Verizon cellular device, a Verizon 4G LTE device um, that runs off you know the Verizon network. Um, so yeah, man, it's excited. We've been working on that for oh geez since 2017. So it's nice <laughs> to finally have that come to market and um, get that off our shoulders and get some feedback from the public and all oh, that's been phenomenal. Um, and it's it's kind of cool this time of year to to have a product launch because, you know, I, as you said, the deer woods are kind of closing down and there's not much excitement. I mean, shed season's right around the corner, but, uh, you know, to have a new product out and have, have feedback and kind of keep that excitement going, you know, all year round, uh, for the deer woods is, is pretty cool. So. Yeah, for sure, man. That's good. That's good. Um, so you and I, we got to speak at ATA quite a bit mm-hmm. and, um, kind of realized we have similar background in the fact that we played college football um not together but uh we both played (laughs) and uh can you kind of take us back to uh maybe college football days 
uh, some of the lessons you might have learned, and then like just kind of mm-hmm. uh, just kind of drive us through your story and tell us how you got to where you're at today working with Exodus. Yeah, man, it was. Uh, you know, I grew up in a super small town. Um, as you said, a lot. You know, very similar to you. I'm a town of 1,200 people, super small school, uh, and was really a, a pretty good athlete growing up um, in high school. Played uh, uh, safety and, and tailback, and you know, won some accolades coming through school, and really was recruited on the national level um, and a lot of a lot of major college football programs, and. I guess going through that process, I, uh, kind of, you know, coming from such a small school where that was really not the norm of having, uh, an athlete or someone gaining so much attention. I mean, there were college coaches coming in to watch us practice and I'd be pulled from class once or twice a week to meet with a recruiting coordinator or a coach. And I kind of was tailored to, you know, by the faculty, the high school faculty to a point where, you know, I, I kind of, kind of got a little, little, uh, uh, little cocky, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And, um, really thought like everyone, like the world, I, I guess was owed me something. Um, but to make a long story short, yeah, I, I, uh, ended up playing division one, double A's double A ball at Youngstown state. And when I went there, uh, it was really, really an eye opening experience. Um, you know, I wasn't really, focused on education, I guess yep. you could say, you know, I was there to play football and that was kind of my thing. Um, you know, I had dreams, dreams of a little, uh, from a little boy is growing up and trying to make it to the league. And that's kind of what my focus was on was, was just, you know, solely football. But when I went there, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder because I had been, re- I had got recruited by all these big schools. And for one re- reason or another, I didn't sign or didn't have any offers at some of the, you know, major college football programs where I thought I was going to end up. And, uh, so when I ended up at a one double a school, I felt like I was kind of above everybody on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, went in, got redshirted as a freshman. Um, again, I got recruited to play safety, but I was, you know, my feet weren't really all that great to, and, you know, I didn't have the hip work. So I ended up playing linebacker, mm-hmm. um, lettered as a lettered as a redshirt freshman. And then as a sophomore, I was actually starting. I was, I was slated to start as a sophomore and, uh, some injuries happened through camp or whatnot. And they wanted to move me to play inside linebacker from, I was a scene player. So I was a force force player playing on the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in a Nick and also in a nickel package, played nickel and nickel package. And when they wanted to move me into the inside, I was just like, you know what? Like, I'm not big enough to play on the inside. I'm, I'm six, six, one, two thirty. Like, yeah, I got good speed, but this, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, if I have a chance to play in the league, I'm not going to be able to play on the inside. I'm too small. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, took that mentality and really, I uh, just felt like, you know, the coaches were trying to screw me over that, you know, I was just really being really damn selfish. And, a lot of that mindset came from um, some of the people I was hanging hanging around with. Felt like, uh, you know, again, like the world owed me something. I wasn't focused on, you know, sacrificing for the team, and uh, I was just worried about myself. And ultimately, that led me to to walking away. Just just walked away from from the team. Um, <laughs> continued, you know, the, on the education side, but you know, with my focus being on football and not really 
academics it, that was that was pretty short lived and mm-hmm. um <clears throat> you know the mentality that i had there was, i can i can almost accredit that to where i am today because that was a lesson that uh i i've learned over the last i don't know probably 10 years is just being meant the capacity mentally to be tough enough to go through hardships and and uh, the trials and tribulations and struggles and knowing that, you know, things won't always be perfect, but you still have to do the work every single day, have a great attitude because somewhere in the world, no matter how bad you have it, someone else has a worse. Right. Yep. So, you know, those lessons really have brought me, you know, I guess kind of what I deploy in my daily here at Exodus. And, you know, we talk about building company culture or corporate culture. That's, you know, that stems from the lessons I learned 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So, uh-huh. um, and that wasn't an overnight process either. There was a, you know, from the time that I stopped playing football, I never really wanted to have a corporate nine to five. Mm-hmm. That was never, that was never my interest. So never wanted to really go to work, uh, for anyone else. Always had an entrepreneurial mindset and, uh, did the rodeo you know, thing for a while, didn't you? Yes. That's yeah. What I was, yeah. That's what I was getting ready to, to say. So, Really, when I was 22, I didn't really want to go to work for anybody. So um, I pursued a professional rodeo career in a PRCA and PBR until I was 28, 29. Um, and then, you know, from there, went on to uh, went to work for an engineering firm that my father owned. Worked there for a few years. Um, then I left and did a short stint in the telecom, telecommunications, working with um, AT&T and Verizon on, with an A&E firm. And, um, which I absolutely hated. Like I was in a, <laughs> I was in a cubicle and a desk job. Yeah. But look at you now, you get to, you now you're developing a cell camera. So like, well, that's yeah, pr- probably helped you, huh? <clears throat> oh, there's no doubt about it. Just having the background <laughs> and, uh, just the familiarity with, uh, you know, how those, how those companies operate and, you know, the, their, their technology and how, you know how that's, that stuff actually works was a giant help, mm-hmm. um, you know, bring that render project to, to market. But, um, yeah, just those two, those sh- short two years in that nine to five is really what, uh, kind of led me to say, Hey, I gotta get the hell out of here and, and do something for myself. And, you know, that's kind of what led to the start of start of Exodus. It's cool, man. So <clears throat> a couple of things from that story that I would <clears throat> make statements <clears throat> about, I guess, um, first people, people see, um, this ESPN perspective of college sports and, mm-hmm. um, man, it is tough to be a college athlete. Um, it's not as glorious as it looks. Um, and, and I'll, and I'll also say this, that, and this makes us sound like, you know, some old men, but like even 10 years ago playing football, was different than it is today practicing every day like you still hit and you still went head to head and you had headaches all the time whereas today it's a little more high sock you know fly around and don't hit anybody too hard in practice and it became it started becoming that way um even in my latter years of playing but um just that like just grind of kind of that hard nose ache aching all the time you know and then you know struggling to um through injuries and through not being where you want to be and that kind of thing. Um, and man, you're like, you're like 19 years old, you know, like you just don't know any better than to just kind of like be selfish and be, um, 
you know, kind of rebellious, I guess. And so like, just to kind of, I guess, relate to what you're saying and to also throw that out there. I think that, um, it's really, it's really good that you have come from that and you have been molded into something different because like, you know, we're, we're constantly supposed to be molded into something better, right? Every, every day we're looking to be a better version of ourselves. And, and, uh, I think that that's, uh, kudos to you for doing that, you know, and despite not having, despite not getting the education, maybe you wanted, I also have noticed that you're, you're really well-spoken, um, and you're not like some dumb meathead. So that's why I like <laughs> talking to you. You know what I mean? Cause you know, well, yeah. the, you know, the dumb meatheads I'm talking about that, oh, yeah. that walked yeah, around yeah. the locker room, right? You know what I mean? And so I, I can appreciate that about you. And, and that's, that's one reason we wanted to have you on the podcast was, uh, Give us some uh, non-meathead talk about <laughs> football. <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate the compliment. And, and it's funny, um, you know, when you talk about being 19, 18, 19, 20 years old and making that jump from, you know, high school to college and the athletic world, um, you know, the, the maturity level, it's just, you know, it's not, for most people, it's not there. And for the guys that it is there, you know, those are the guys that are, really, uh, I guess doing something special, the one percenters mm-hmm. of, of, the, of the world, but, you know, coming full kind of full circle. I mean, I find myself, I don't watch TV. I said, you know, if I have free time at night, I'm reading books or I'm, I'm reading articles, uh, you know, on the internet and trying to educate myself inside of the marketplace that I kind of, uh, that runs my life, which is the outdoor and hunting industry. So, I mean, it, it, it does come full circle. I think, um, unfortunately for me, it just, it just took till I was 30 years old. To hit that maturity level. <laughs> That's all right, dude. That's all right, man. Yeah. It's, it's good that you got there. I, uh, I, I, you know, we've talked before. I don't really have the college uh, football side of things going on, but like my story kind of parallels just academically where, uh, coming out of high school, I, I had a lot of, uh, you know, partial and full scholarship offers academically. I, I scored a 31 on my ACT. I didn't have a great GPA, but I had a really high ACT score. And had the same thing going where I felt like the world owed me a free education. You know what I mean? And, and uh, just left and completely underachieved. Um, and I, di- I didn't have the maturity level to fit like that intellect to where I didn't try at all. You know, and, and um, I, I do a little preaching on the side. So uh, I preached a lesson the other day about oak trees and about how... Uh, different acorns take different processes to get to a full full grown big beautiful oak tree and i kind of compared my walk in my life with that of like a red oak that has to go through a stratification process to where i can't just hit the ground and germinate and grow real big like a white oak can you know i got to go through like a cooling process or, or through a little bit of trial and tribulation to get where you are and i don't know maybe the uh the wood from trees like that's a little stouter. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. cool, man. I guess that's kind of a good way to get into what we really want to talk about: deer hunting. And uh, you hunt primarily in Ohio, correct? Yeah, that's uh, you know, born and raised in Ohio. I have hunted some different states, but primarily, uh, um, you know, Ohio is my my home whitetail state yeah. for sure. So, and you hunt a lot of public land these days. Um, you've told me it's challenging. Uh, but it's by choice and it's not like a necessity. 
some guys, mm-hmm. uh, some guys like to talk about hunting public land as a necessity, and sometimes it is kind of a necessity. Um, maybe it's also that they didn't work as hard at getting permission properties or whatever. But um, explain how you got to the point of now where you're hunting public land. You're focused there. Yeah. So I guess the the common thing in my life, and and again, this relates back to football and uh, the trials, tribulations, the struggles, the failures is being in love with the process, not the end goal. So that's like my common theme, whether I'm hunting, whether I'm at work on the, on, you know, doing my daily, if it's, you know, I'm spending time with my family, I'm in love with the process. And if you're not in love with the process, you're going to struggle throughout your entire life and you're never going to be happy. Um, so just, that's kind of, that's kind of the baseline for everything that I do. So, you know, growing up, I grew up, um, in a, in a hunting family, but not a family of serious hunters. You know, it was more of a tradition, uh, the week of gun season, everyone, everyone would take a few days off work, everybody hit the woods and, uh, that was celebrated, which, you know, that's, that's an awesome thing. But at the, at the very young age of, um, 13, I guess 12 or 13 is really when I, I started gun hunting. Um, you know, on a family farm, my grandfather, a, a farm that's been in my family since my, I guess my great grandfather owned. So almost 500 continuous acres of prime whitetail habitat. I mean, um, we weren't in the food plots and, and things of that nature back in, or the management side of things back in the mid nineties. But, you know, there were being large ag fields, um, high stem count cover. There's some mature timber, just, just a beautiful farm the way it laid out. So, at the young age of 16, I was able to, I killed my first buck and that deer grossed 177 inches. The very, <laughs> oh my God. The, oh my the very goodness. first deer. Yeah. So the very, <laughs> very first deer I killed, um, was an absolute giant. Ugh. And again, I got a, you know, I got a ton of attention from that. Everyone, you know, there's a big write up in the newspaper article and you know, my family was going nuts and, uh, so from that point on, I was like, this is awesome. Like, I just need to replicate this every year. So I started bow hunting the following year at 17, at 17 years old. And let me tell you, <laughs> I've made every dang mistake you possibly make with a bow in your hands. <laughs> I mean, everything. Um, missing deer. I've wounded deer. Um, you know, been busted. From top to bottom, made every mistake you can possibly make. But over the course of the next, you know, 10 years from 17 to I don't know, 20, 26, 27. Um, it was, it got to a point where I was hunting that farm and almost anybody coming in off the street could go sit in a, in a pinch point or, you know, downwind of a doe bedding area during rut and kill a good deer. It was like every year somebody was coming in and killing, you know, 160, 170, 180 inch deer. Um, it was, I, and I'm not saying that it was, it was easy cause it's definitely not easy and it was never guaranteed, but as long as you did things, you know, the right way, you watched the wind, you, you, you spent a little time scouting, you ran some cameras, your odds were pretty good that you were going to kill, you know, a solid whitetail. And, um, I had an opportunity to go out West with my grandfather on an, on an elk hunt. And <clears throat> that really changed the way I looked at hunting whitetails, you know, in the, in the Midwest. When I, uh, we went to Southwest Colorado and hunted, in the Uncompadre National Forest, giant, just huge, vast track of land. Um, anybody that's spent any time out has spent any time out west knows 
you know, just the beauty of the landscape and the vastness. And you, you almost feel like you've been in areas where no other human has really set foot on ever. You know, of course, that's not the case, but that's what it makes you feel <laughs> yeah. like. You're, right. You get, ro- get romantic about that idea. Yeah. And uh, I found myself after, a, after an unsuccessful hunt, but nonetheless, we were out there to make memories and, and whatnot with my with my grandfather. So when I came back that year um, to the Whitetail Woods, I found myself sitting in that woodlot and I could hear dogs bark and I could hear cars and I could see the barn light come on in the evening time. Um, and it just was like, you know, what the heck am I doing here? Like I, my mind kept going back to, to Colorado and, uh, you know, hunting those big woods, you know, adventure style hunting. Hmm. So I ended up capping that year off with 167 inch typical <laughs> and, and like, <laughs> Yeah, it was the the third sit. It was my third sit during the ride. It was like November 10th or November 11th. And I had been in the woods for two hours. Um, came in, you know, made a good shot. Deer went 40 yards, dropped, and like my season was over. And I was like, you know, there has to be something. There's got to be something more to this than than what I'm doing here. And I uh, I came across a short film called Pursuing the Allegheny where these three individuals – these three guys were taking this Western adventure style hunting and doing it in Pennsylvania in the Allegheny national forest. So I I was kind of intrigued that, uh, you know, how they were doing that. And I was, I instantly fell in love with the idea and and was like, well, how can I do that in Ohio? So I started looking at giant tracks of, uh, the biggest public land tracks I could find. So four or five years ago, uh, I guess it was five years ago, I started hunting, a 60,000 acre track of big woods next to zero structure in hill country. Um, you know, very few roads. And I just fell in love with that entire process. Again, it's, it was a process of going in there and doing things in such a hard manner. Not that I wanted to do something anyone else, you know, couldn't do, or it was just about testing myself, you know, and growing personally as, as a hunter. Um, so I've been doing that for four or five years now. Um, I've been unsuccessful. Uh, I have not killed a buck there in four years. It's kind of a running joke inside of our company. People are like, well, how, how do you, how do you run a trail camera company? And, you know, you can't kill a deer in your home state. Um, so do you feel closer though today than you did five years ago? Oh my gosh. I'm after, you know, going from hunting that manicured ag farm to hunting big woods public. I'm 10 times a hunter than I was, you know, hunting, hunting that, hunting that farm. Yeah. Um, just boots on the ground scouting, be able to read terrain, knowing how those deer navigate in, um, such vast, you know, vast pieces of land and really hunting them on their own movement. I mean, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing in, there's next to zero influence there. I mean, you're hunting deer on their natural movements, how they were, you know, a hundred years ago. Yeah. Right. Right. So it, it's really cool. Do you feel like, um, you know, you said you worked the nine to five for just a little bit, right? And then mm-hmm. just got a, just enough taste for it that you said that's not for you. Do you feel like the the private land thing is kind of the deer hunters nine to five, where it's easy, it's comfortable, and you can have some success, and it's okay if that's what you want to do with your life. But there's also the other side of it too. Um, I, yeah, I think so. You, you could you could say that. Yeah. Um, I think it's di- probably different for everyone. Yeah. Um, because after, I will tell you this, after four years or five years of not filling a tag, 
Uh, I, I mean, my thoughts do go back to go back and hunting, <laughs> hunting private yeah. ground. Yeah. yeah. I hear you, man. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I think it's probably just, it's different for, for everyone. I don't think people define success in the same manner, obviously. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's just personal preference, I guess. So speaking of the process, can you kind of take us through, um, the process you're like, say your scouting process, like what, what has made you, where did you start? when you first started hunting that 50,000 acre track and then what is your, how has your process evolved to the point of today where you said that you feel a lot, like a lot better hunter, that you're a lot closer to killing one of these big public land bucks. Um, you know, what does your process look like as far as scouting, getting closer to that hunting even, what does that process look like? Well, it started with, uh, um, digital scouting, reading, you know, uh, topo maps and you know doing a little bit of research on on forums but uh you know figuring out areas that had less pressure um where i could get away from people was was really the focus when i started um and then what i found was you know that first that very first season you know that's what everyone else is doing everyone else is reading uh, topographical maps. They're looking for saddles and benches and those major terrain features where it would pinch down, pinch down deer. And regardless of, uh, how far it was from a road, almost everyone in that area, any, anyone that goes to that area and hunts in Ohio is willing to put in the work. So I actually was doing myself a disservice by looking at those major, um, those major saddles and benches and, and, um, draws and drainages because that's where everyone else is going there. So, uh-huh. After a year of running cameras there, um, I quickly realized like the the bigger deer that that we had on camera, and we were running again. We had just started this company, and we were running at that time. We probably had fifty fifty cameras there, um, and I'm gonna say there was we probably focused on four or five thousand acres out of that out of that fifty thousand, mm-hmm. and um, quickly realized like those deer in those in those big woods have way longer way longer of movement. So their bed to food pattern was a lot longer. Um, it was a little more sporadic cause they could bed and feed anywhere. Um, so after running, you know, running 50 cameras for that year, we noticed there was a, there was, um, a pattern that would happen. Certain deer would hole up in areas for three or four days, whether that was based on food or whether that was based on bedding due to extreme weather or even around the rut. So, the following year, we were able to use that data, that annual, that annual trail camera data, and actually put ourselves in position, um, you know, to get on some deer. Which, you know, painstakingly saying um, at that, I, you know, I'm running all those cameras. You get really, I was, I, I guess I've had a bad habit of getting romantic about killing really big deer. Like mm-hmm. it's been, it's been like that since I've been 16. And <laughs> unfortunately, that second year I was there, I'm you let some deer walk that I probably shouldn't have let walk. Mm-hmm. Like um, what kind of deer? If, explain for the listener what that might look like. Uh, like a four-year-old 130. Uh, yeah. Like just a nice, I mean, a great a great public land deer, a great deer anywhere, regardless mm-hmm. of public, private, whatever. Um, I let two deer walk that year, that uh, two separate deer, that I probably should have let an arrow fly. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I you know, I thought I was, you know, I have had the confidence in myself that I was going to be able to put myself on a bigger deer. And it just was never the case. And actually, I spent uh, three consecutive three consecutive years there hunting a single deer <laughs> on sixty thousand acres, which Ooh. is 
which is <laughs> pretty, I mean, that's, it's damn near impossible. It was, it was, it was tough. But at the same time, the guy I was hunting with was doing the same thing and he was able to capitalize that. So three years in a row, he hunted a uh, 160 inch typical nine point. And that third year he shot that deer, which we actually, I actually filmed that hunt, um, shot him five feet from the base of his tree. Oh, oh man. Incredi- it was incredible. I bet. Incredible. Golly. That's awesome, dude. So, um, so as far as we'll get into some of these details, um, but I feel like that, I guess, first of all, it's to me, we, could you set up kind of like what the area looks like? You've maybe talked about it, but like, so it's, it's kind of hill country, I guess. Um, what kind of trees, um, is it rocky? Is it what sandy? You know, how does all that look? Yeah, and with that, can you explain what hill country is for y'all? Because we have a region in Texas that's hill country that I don't think is anything like what you're right. talking about. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay, yeah. Um, so when I describe hill country, it's a lot like um, it's really the foothills of the Appalachians. You know, that run through um, much of the, I guess, the east side of the east side of the part of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, elevation change anywhere from up. 400 to 600 feet um very steep hills um and i say steep it's they're almost it, they're hard i mean it's it's tough to walk that you, you got to be in pretty decent shape so like a one-on-one slope for 45 degrees is not um not not uncommon there um very short ridges so you know if you and p for people who are maybe listening from like west virginia or kentucky or even new york pennsylvania hill country mountainous regions there have you know, they can get on a ridge and walk for a mile or two sometimes. And mm-hmm. in Southern Ohio, it's, it, that's just not the case. You know, you might have a, uh, a ridge that's you know, five or 600 feet and that's it. Um, mm-hmm. so very, very rugged terrain. Um, as far as soil conditions, it is a little bit rocky. Um, but there's not, there's not like a bunch of like rocky outcrops or like mm-hmm. sheer, sheer bluffs or, or anything of that nature. Um, and for the most part, a lot of it's open, open hardwoods. Mm-hmm. So, um, not, not a lot of pine growth. Um, now there are areas of, of timber management that the state actually, um, the state manages. So there's a lot of, a lot of clear cuts with like some super really high, uh, high stem count with, um, you know, a lot of that, that regrowth. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of, and again, that's, it's with 60,000 acres. That's, I know that's kind of, kind of broad. I mean, if you break it down into thousand acre chunks, every thousand acres is, is a little bit different, but yeah, sure. super, 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 super rugged, um, steep hills, short ridges and yeah. Open hardwoods is. So is like kind of the, what kind of, what kind of hardwoods? Oaks, uh, oaks, hickories, um, maple trees. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot of, a ton of white oaks. Yeah. Um, some reds, so in, in that situation, when you've got a ton of white oaks, and we mm-hmm. run into this problem a lot here, we've <clears throat> we've got pretty much red oaks a lot of time where, where we hunt, and we're still looking for uh, the the white oak tree <laughs> in a lot of areas that we hunt. There, we're like right on the right on the line, current like where we where we hunt uh, private and public a lot. And then uh-huh. if you go east of here, just I mean. 60 miles yeah. you're going to be in white oak country pretty much um mm-hmm. so uh 
Yeah, but but my point is we ha- we have a lot of we'll have like one of our more preferred oaks is a red oak called the Schumard oak in a lot of areas we hunt, um, and so like you can go to a certain property, public or private, and not have any Schumards, and then you can go to a certain you know two hundred acre place that has tons of Schumards on it, and so um, if it doesn't, but if it doesn't have Schumards on it, it'll be probably like um, smaller. Uh, post oak acorns or um, we have you know these willow and swamp oaks that have these real small uh, really red orange acorns that fall I mean in hordes and so like my one thing that we have kind of struggled with is like how do you key in on I mean obviously it's a food source and they're they're hammering Mm -hmm. them but how do you key in in a big wood situation which is kind of what we encounter on a certain I mean do you have to just get lucky and say well I mean, I know there there are things, but what are the things that you key in on to find, well, that's the white oak tree today, you know, or this yeah. year or whatever? Right. Well, I think when there's a large mass crop, um, it's really hard because those deer in big woods can pretty much go anywhere and be on a food source. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they can bed anywhere and be relatively close to a food source. So they may not be moving as much, um, you know, during daylight hours. Mm-hmm. So in the early season on those with those white oaks, it's really, really tough. Um, we try to use this historical data, uh, and relate to historical bedding and get on those, get on those white oak flats that are relatively, you know, within 150, 200 yards of early season bedding, uh, which is typically it's, even though it is wind related, a lot of times what we find is those deer will be on on those North slopes, uh, early in the season. Um, you know, up on that upper one third, still trying to eat, to, to use, uh, you know, the wind, use that thermal and wind tunnel to their advantage on that upper one third. But a lot of times they're on that, the Northern side on those points, um, on those short ridges in the early season, in the, in the late season, I actually, which in the big woods for us, it's a lot easier to find those food sources in the late season. Cause they're just, um, they're just a lot less of them in that area. So we'll find chinkapins, um, in the late season. And, and you can almost, almost guarantee if it's dropping, dropping acorns, um, you know, deer will hole up there for three or four days. And it's just a matter of being able to time that, um, mm-hmm. you know, every year to be able to kind of move in there and have an opportunity, which again, historically is, uh, you know, coming from trail camera data. But the one thing I would note is, you know, when guys are out in the, in the season scouting, um, take your binoculars and, and look for that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think that's something that's a lost art and, in today's world, everyone's so worried about um, sitting over an ag field or a fancy food plot. Um, I think some of that stuff is some of that stuff is lost. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you just talked about the early and late season. Can you tell me like where the line of delineation is between those two, and like what months that is for you? Yeah, I, I mean, early season for us is anything prior to, well, what I consider, I mean, everybody probably have their own take on this, but prior to like October 21st, okay, um, really before that kind of pre-rut where, you know, you're really starting to see scrapes and stuff open up. Yeah. Um, and then I would say after, uh, after the weekend of Thanksgiving, so really after, we'll call it December 1st, you know, moving all the way to the end of the season is, mm-hmm. is where we start to focus on those late season food sources. Yeah, yeah. gotcha. So you're kind of just talking about um, the times when testosterone is affecting the deer less, pretty much is what you're like early season and late season. And then 
most of November and then a little bit of the outside of the bell curve there is kind of the rut where it falls outside of those. Uh, right. So you touched on something pretty cool there. And there's like, <laughs> Tyler and I like to talk about this a lot. Uh, there's this like food plot movement that's been going on since probably the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this whole like uh, romanticizing the idea of... Uh, well-cultivated food plots and how great they are for, for, you know, all wildlife and this and that. And that very well may be true, but there's something about the fact that these animals did just fine without the food plots for (laughs) thousands of years. Right. And you, you touched on something huge with the binoculars and looking at the acorns and stuff. And I think there's, I'm a I'm a oak nut as of the last year. I really have been not an acorn, but you know an oak <laughs> nut. Uh, I like I've really got into it, man. And there's like when you start looking at things, people like to say that you know, well, acorns only encompass just a little part of a deer's diet. You know, like oak, they're not there for very long. That's not really true. You've got trees that are dropping acorns from September to. F- almost february in some parts of the country but you know from from september to at least december um mm-hmm. that's the whole fall that's when we're hunting so why not concentrate on that and, and have you found that you can pattern deer off of uh which species of oak tree is putting off that month or that week well i don't i don't know if i've we've looked at it on that deep of a level yeah. um i'll just to be totally honest i'm not super good with uh super good with my subspecies um you know i i do know a few a few sawtooth a, a few different white oaks and a few different red oaks yeah um but to break it down by the week no i, I mean i wish i wish i had that capabilities maybe that's something um i should probably should probably work on especially if you know my, my focus being on the big woods but yeah no i i've never i've never had the ability or uh, the mindset to to, to do that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were, you were speaking about this earlier and, um, and you hear a lot about this, I guess, in the media, but, um, in, in that hill country that you hunt, are you, and I think you are, but are you using elevation to steer winds in different directions or are you trying to find areas to hunt that are like the wind was a pretty consistent direction as to what the weatherman says? <laughs> Yeah, the wind is, uh, you know, that's the, that was the biggest learning curve um, for me coming from flat agron to hill country is understanding the wind and the thermals because regardless, in that area, regardless of what the weatherman says, the wind is never going to, at least from what I found, the wind is never going to be accurate with with what the, with the wind direction on for, in the weather forecast. Right. Um, the, the ridges there are just, they're too steep and they're too short. Um, so you can look at your weather app on your phone and, and it could be calling for a West wind and you get to your spot and that wind might be coming from the Northeast because the wind's wrapping around a point. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, I almost create like a, uh, so I, I, I use Onyx maps a lot. So I have pins dropped in different areas of, uh, interest, I guess. And really, I don't know what the wind's going to do until I get in there and, drop some milkweed to see exactly, you know, what it's, how it's, you know, how the thermals are affecting it. Um, how, you know, the different points and ridges or saddles are affecting it. Um, and that's a big part of really understanding that it's a big part of how you access, how I've been accessing 
uh, a lot of those fan locations is because you can cheat the wind if you understand what it's doing um, and use those terrain features um, and have your wind or scent blow into areas where you know deer or think deer are not going to be. So mm-hmm. it not only plays a big part in your actually the actual stand time, but it plays a big part in in access and uh, entry and exit sure. exit routes. So do you have a like a setup that you like to go with consistently that you see the wind behave? You know, like you can go look at a topo and say, I think the wind's going to behave like this here, and that sets up well for the style that I hunt or whatever. Um, I don't know that there's a uh, – I don't know that there's a, um, like a cookie-cutter answer to that. What I can say is that understanding thermals um, and knowing when you can hunt bottoms and when you need to be up on the, up on the tops, when, you're, when your scent's going to drop, when it's going to be rising um, – on those days where it's like you have next to zero wind, so it's super, super calm, maybe a high-pressure day like Bluebird Day, I do like to get in those bottoms where you know your thermals, you're going to have that lift, mm-hmm. and things are just going to, you know, everything, everything's going to be shooting straight up. Mm-hmm. Now, on top of that, if you if you can get into an area where there's moving water, that can be a huge, huge advantage, not only to use – you know, to suck your thermals and watch your thermals and scent, you know, follow that, uh, that stream of water, that flowing water, but also as a barrier, depending on, you know, how fast that water is moving or how deep it is. Um, it's almost like having a, uh, like a barricade, uh, you know, on, on one side of your set. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So can you explain that? Like how the moving, like, why is it important, important that the water's moving? Well, yeah, the, you know, the faster the water is moving, typically if, if the water is moving, it's going to carry, carry your scent in that direction. There's going to be an air current over top of that water. Okay. So you have flowing water and then there's actually an air current on top of that. That's actually flowing in that same direction of the water. The colder the water, the better, because that's, it's going to have a harder suck and it's going to pull your thermals, uh, pull your, pull your scent even faster down close to that water. And then it's going to carry everything away in that, in that direction. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's cool. So and then also that that uh, water speed, I guess, could uh, deter a, an animal from trying to swim across or walk across that. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So <clears throat> I guess I should have asked you this earlier, but are there like a, is there like a key factor or two that you like to key in on uh, when you hunt? You know, some guys like rubs, some guys uh, love scrapes. Some guys like the rut because it's unpredictable and you never know if a giant's going to walk by you. Is there some mm-hmm. kind of factor that you really look for when you're out there, uh, scouting? Yeah, I do like, uh, I love primary scrapes. So big community scrapes that are there all year round and that are in relation to heavy cover. Um, because in the areas that we hunt, the deer density is super, super low. I mean, it's, I don't know. I think we've talked about that at the ATA show when, when we first chatted, but maybe one, one, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 deer per square mile. I mean, there's not a lot of deer. Yeah. Um, and what we find is those deer will hit scrapes in daylight, but that typically primary scrapes close to bedding that's in relation to cover. Um, and we've seen that year over year over year with, you know, the amount of cameras that we run. So those are areas that we do like to focus on. Um, and then also secondary terrain features. And what I mean by secondary is, you know, going back to reading topographical maps, everybody wants to get in those big pinches and those big deep saddles or those real nice benches that, you know, that are really easily seen from, from, uh, from a topo map. But when you go in there and walk some of those areas, 
I've found secondary trails, um, maybe a little bit lower on that bench or a little bit higher on that bench or a saddle that's maybe not, not as defined. Uh, and then hanging cameras in those areas. And we actually have more pictures of bigger deer using those secondary terrain features than those, um, you know, those, those primary terrain features. And I think that is related to just having a bad experience over, you know, if that deer is four or five years old, mm-hmm. at some point he he's used those major terrain features and had some kind of negative encounter, whether that's with a predator or human or, or whatever. So those are really the, the two big things that I look for. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, it's funny that you're talking about this a, a few times and you've alluded to it several times that it's something that we, I think did a pretty good job of this year, as opposed to the last year or two is uh, like, you know, if we, you know, as we're learning some of these properties or these land, these public lands here in Texas, we'll um, you know, like if, especially if it's a newer property, we'll, we'll in the, in the first couple of years we started doing this together, we would, um, be like, oh, look, you can see that uh, there's two different types of trees, and that kind of makes a funnel right there or whatever. And we'd go in there for a morning hunt, and the sun would come up, and there'd be um, two stands and then a set of, you know, spikes put into another tree or something like that. <laughs> and we're like, dadgum, everybody's hunting, everybody's seen this, you know? Yeah. And and I think this year we did a lot better. We had a um, – we, we hunted an area, actually, that was – uh, KC had found through some boot scout and that was a really great funnel. Uh, unfortunately, um, there was, uh, some hunter pressure in there that kind of knocked the, the whole game in a different direction in November, but in October, our cameras were just lit up, you know? So mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point that you make there is, is that, uh, you know, as many, you know, and I hate to say this, but as many cell cams as you have, you still got to get out there and boot scan- scout, you know, and, and, uh, because things things change year to year, and you can't see everything uh, through the through a camera or through a you know a map, an aerial or a topo. It's a good yep. point, man. Yep. yep. Um, go ahead. Yeah, the thing the thing with you know public is there's so many there's so many variables. I mean, you can get data from a camera, but unless you're asking yourself when, where, and why that deer is actually there, um, and sometimes you don't have all those answers if you're not able to run a a vast number of cameras. You've only run three or four cameras. Sometimes you can't answer all those questions. So uh, that data can be misleading um, as far as why, you know, certain deer were in a certain area or at what time of the year. Um, And, you know, get trying to eliminate those, those variables, trying to eliminate human pressure or um, all of, you know, anything you can't, that's outside of your control, trying to eliminate that stuff only leads to your success. So, as you said, the boots on the ground scouting in real time, like there's no, there is no substitute for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, people I think get consumed with running cameras and getting pictures of deer, um, which is great, but that should be in addition, in addition to putting the work in on the ground and, and being able to read that sign in real time for yourself. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't, I, I want to move in the same direction with that, but before we get too far uh, from the community scrape thing, can you kind of define what the size of and what a community scrape looks like because we uh we have smaller deer down here so i don't know a lot of our scrapes are you know like some of them look better than others but none of them are really i haven't noticed that they're much bigger a lot of times around here you know than another one is that is it typically a community scrape a larger diameter um yeah i mean most of what we see uh generally speaking most of those community scrapes will be at least 
two and a half, three feet in, in diameter, I guess. All of them will have a, a really hard worked licking branch, um, you know, overhanging and they're used just about, I mean, mostly, mostly worked for 12 months out of the year. So not just, um, not just revolving around the rut or pre-rut, but those deer, um, typically use those in correlation to bedding 24 seven. So, um, and not only by, you know, not always by mature deer, sometimes they're, they're younger deers. A lot of times those are hitting those. So, um, it's just a, I guess, communication focal point, um, in correlation to bedding and, and, uh, and cover. Yeah. Uh, during like the off months, uh, I guess that's what you call them. I could say in May, are deer mm-hmm. actually scraping or are they just working the licking branch? Most of the time they're just working the licking branch. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can see if they've worked that licking branch, I mean, is it still, does it look like a dead branch or sometimes can you see like new parts that have been, you know, I guess browsed or, or chewed on or, you know, however they might break it off. Can you see that new break or is it, you just have to assume that this is a community scrape. I've, I've, uh, you know, I found this in the fall um, because it was open but they're still using it, but they're just rubbing glands on it or something. Or is there actually visual evidence to that? Yeah, the visual evidence is, is there's a lot less um, because, you know, the, most of the time the ground's not being being worked up as much. Um, but we're proving that with, with cameras. So, you know, we see uh, a large scrape like that coming across it in correlation with bedding, and we put a camera there. Mm-hmm. So, and then we have, you know, a photo or video evidence of those deer coming in and using that, uh, you know, 12 months out of the year. So that's mostly where that comes from. How, how far from bedding are you liking those to be? Uh, typically within 50 to 100 yards. So something yeah. where a deer is going to get up out of his bed and move there in daylight in transition before he goes to, you know, his primary food source or staging area um, in, at, you know, in the, in the evening hours. So Gotcha. Yeah, 50 to 100 yards typically. Cool. So – how how right now in february um here coming up before the deer shed um how are you using this you know cameras to collect data that you can use to kill a buck next year um right here in february in the postseason well i think the biggest thing right now in the postseason um is you know just getting data on what deer have made it through the season and what kind of shape they're in mm-hmm. um so like through this past year, um, you know, there are several deer on, on, uh, my hit list at, uh, and Jake, I guess we've talked about several deer in our podcast and kind of the story of them, uh, either making it or not making it through the season. And now this is just confirming, Hey, this deer's still alive. Let's, you know, let's go back and really dive into the data that we've gathered from him, uh, for the year and, and build on that. And there's, again, there's no guarantees. It's only February that that deer could, that deer could live for two more months, get hit by a car and, be, be done but mm-hmm. at least at this point you can say hey this deer's made it you know let's 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 have another go around with him for next year i got you so that's that's more important than um than actually finding something that they're doing or an area that you they're using right now i guess uh yeah i mean what we find in in the big woods this deer hole up for you know a few days and their movements are so sporadic that now you can focus like on late season food sources, mm-hmm. but that may change, that may change for next year. So, um, 
you know, the trail camera data on the trail camera end of things, that's really the only thing that we're do- using uh, cameras for this time of year that, and, you know, see when, when they're actually shedding. Yeah. Um, but then going in and boots on the ground, if you're doing some postseason scouting, now you can look at um, the habitat change or maybe out- other outside influences that may, you know, shift or move those deer out of that, out of those areas or, you know, access at different access routes, or maybe there's new pressure added, things of that nature but as far as the on the camera end it's really just to know which deer have made it made it through and uh when they're shedding Mm -hmm. so kind of speaking of that you know during the season um i guess relate this relate this to season scouting but you know hunter pressure during the season can affect um you know can essentially move a buck we saw it this year move a a, what you would call a target buck for that area Mm -hmm. out uh completely and mm-hmm. then you've got forestry and several other factors that can cause deer to just move out of an area. So make a case for me why running cameras on public is a good idea. And then further tell me how like actual hunting season info can help us out 10 or 12 months later during the next season. Well, the, the biggest thing with running cameras on public um, is historical data. Um, you know, and I'm going to, I'm speaking of, I guess, traditional SD card cameras. It is, it is so scary that, and, and this is, some people might find this hard to believe, but we've run a large number between 50 and hundred cameras on public land for four or five years and keeping tabs on specific deer, trying to hunt specific deer, uh, you know, on a 60,000 acre track, we have seen year over year that deer will hole up in the same areas a year later, plus or minus, you know, three days before, three days after. And that might not always be on the same exact, you know, on the same exact camera, but he might be a hundred yards down the ridge or, um, maybe on the, on the next, even the next ridge over. But, um, and that's with all things being equal. So that's, you know, as you mentioned, habitat, um, you know, uh, other outside influences as, you know, hunter intrusion or hunter pressure, um, forestry, uh, forestry management, all of that remaining the same. It's scary how consistent these deer are doing the same things year over year. And as you run cameras for multiple years and those deer actually become a little bit older, the pattern even becomes more defined um, as those deer get older. Now they're typically, they're a lot smarter and a lot wiser, a lot more weary and a lot of times harder to kill, but the pattern itself actually becomes more defined um, as you create those data logs over, over multiple years. Cool. So, so what about, the person who doesn't like the idea of hunting a specific deer, mm-hmm. um, they not that they don't want to kill a big buck, but that uh-huh. they would rather see more deer or something like that, as opposed to I'm going to hunt this specific J hook trail that goes into this bed on this buck. You know, what, uh-huh. what should they look for in a spot? And, um, you know, are there those spots that you can just, kind of go well that's a spot that deer knowing what i know about animals and what i know about whitetails in specific that Mm -hmm. there's going to be deer there and quite possibly bucks are going to use that trail i mean is that a rut situation mainly i think if in the big woods probably if guys are you know if if they're the type of guys that like to see a lot of deer um i i would say that's going to probably revolve around the rut and for me that would be you know food sources and related to doe bedding and some type of pinch point in between, um, is kind of what I would focus, you know, put my focus on. Mm -hmm. Um, and then on a strategy end, you know, 
you know, I, a lot of the stuff that we speak about, we understand guys aren't going to run 50 cameras or hundred cameras. Like yeah. That's, mm-hmm. you know, there aren't a whole lot of people in the world that are going to do that. But if you have four or five cameras even, and you're running them on public, um, there's a, there's a great opportunity there to cast a, a broad net. And what I mean by that is placing one camera on a primary food source and get, start to gathering data on uh, maybe not a specific deer, but deer in general. And then being able to almost like a, how a fisherman cast a net, you know, out into the water and just scoop up fish mm-hmm. as you're basically doing the same thing with cameras, creating a radius with, you know, three or four cameras and then kind of leapfrogging them um, camera over camera to kind of put yourself in a position where, okay, maybe you're getting a deer close to daylight um, where you maybe may have an opportunity to go in and, and, uh, and make a move. So you're, so you're saying if you have three cameras and mm-hmm. you've got them in a line on a trail or, you know, in a, I guess you could say on a line, but in some sort of fashion in a certain direction towards food source that as you pick a deer up, on one camera coming from a certain direction fr- from your other camera, you can just take that and leapfrog the, the later, the camera that picks him up the latest in the evening and move it back on the other side of the camera until you find him, which trail he's coming from to the, to the other camera, I guess, if that's not confusing <laughs> enough. <laughs> and so just keep leapfrogging it back until you find these deer and work all the way. You know, do you work all the way to his bed? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say you want to work all the way to his bed. I guess the easiest way to explain it is it's, it's a lot like, you know, you hear about old timers cutting tracks and backtracking deer, mm-hmm. like backtracking them into their beds or guys going out and cutting uh, fresh tracks and snow and, and really trying to locate and figure out how those deer are moving or navigating. Essentially you're doing the same things, but you're doing it with cameras. Now what I would say is, um, I typically would leave the camera that's on the, the primary food source where you know you're getting pictures of him, I would leave that camera there just to make sure that their deer is, you know, still alive and that's an area that he's still frequenting. And then use those um the second tier cameras to kind of leapfrog um, you know, camera over camera to to get him close to daylight. Um I wouldn't we don't like to put a lot of pressure on beds. Uh it's just you you know, you spend so much time out of the year working and trying to put yourself in a position to put yourself on an animal. It's so easy to mess it up and bump a deer. And then having to go find him is a giant pain in the butt. And we've, I've been there and we've done that. Um, so my, my thought is to be a little more conservative. And then when you're getting that deer, if you have a couple pictures of him that are close to daylight or close to shooting hours, just wait for the weather and wait for those, um, wait for, you know, a temp drop or a big change in wind speed or, anything like that um, that may get him on his feet just a little bit sooner um, and then, and then make your move. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, we're pretty close here in Texas. It's different. Uh, A lot of people are talking, you know, when you see all these posts about people like, are they dropping around you yet? And I'm like, Oh, they are not dropping Mm -hmm. here. (laughs) But in in other places, especially with this cold weather, I'm sure deer are starting to drop. How are you, um, you know, able to use cameras to decide what time is the most effective time to go pick sheds before green up. So right now, um, right now we're using, we're using cell cams on, on food sources and just monitoring, um, you know, when at least 50 or 60% of those deer have dropped. I mean, there's, 
deer have deer have been dropping air for a couple of weeks now, uh, whether that's due to the photo period or, you know, the added stress of uh, season predators, uh, hunting pressure, maybe they've been injured, you know, all, all of that, the stress levels do play a part of uh, how early they shed, uh, you know, on top of the photo period. But yeah, right now just using cell cameras in those primary food areas. Um, and then we're so damn busy, like, we're, we're not going to go out and, you know, hike miles and miles and miles every weekend, pick one or two sheds up. We're going to wait till the majority of those deer uh, have dropped and then we'll make, you know, uh, two weekends we'll go walk. Yeah. And I will admit I'm probably the world's worst shed hunter. <laughs> Dude, I don't know. I might give you a run for your money. Uh, it's, I mean, I'm lucky if I pick two or three up a year. Like it's, it's pretty bad. Well, that's cool. So <laughs> we're in the same boat there. KC's like literally Mr. Eagle Eye. Like he could probably smell them, I think. I'm not sure. I've got a big nose. I think it helps. <laughs> yeah. So so what's what's the tip? Well what's the what's your strategy, man? Just uh, keep your eyes on the ground or what? Yeah, I don't pay enough attention to like the live deer. I'm looking for just the sheds instead. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know, man. I just have been lucky this past season. I mean, we'd be, you know, in a pretty hot you know, he walks stress. in front of me a lot too because he's a good navigator. Uh, I think he's got like a photogenic or photographic memory, and so I don't know. This is just my this is my observation, and so I think that like because I'll notice we'll be walking through like what you would consider the big woods, lots of greenbrier and stuff. Where like you could uh-huh. go through this patch of greenbrier, you could go through that patch of greenbrier. It doesn't really matter. You're going to get eaten up, you know. And, right. um, and he'll go, I just know, like, we'll go into stand locations. He'll, we'll literally walk the exact same path over and over again. And so I kind of, uh, just tip, typically he like walk when we're walking together to stand to video hunt, I mean, he'll, he'll lead. And so I think that's one thing, but he is like hyper aware at all times. I will <laughs> say like, he just, he can literally like, I can't tell you how many times he'll be like, look at that rub over there. And it's like 60 yards through the high stem count, you know. And I'm like, dude, I ain't seeing it, man. And we'll walk and I won't say anything, you know. I'll be like, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then we'll finally, like, we've been walking for like 15 seconds, you know. And then and then there it is, like 20 yards off. And I'm like, holy smokes, dude. And so, and then as soon as I like finally find the, the rub and I'm keying in on that, he's like, oh, look at this shed over here, you know? And I like, I'm just behind the whole time. So yeah, it's all about <laughs> smoke and mirrors, man. Just distract Tyler. That way I can actually find the sheds. It's, that's yeah. He but, found some big ones this year. Yeah. That's funny. So are you guys, is that in like areas of like uh, high thermal cover or is that like food sources or browse areas or what? Well, if you, you talk about... Or- if you talk about like Texas, where we're hunting, you know, the eastern half of Texas, I can't tell you that there's a great uh, correlation to anything. The well, only thing I could tell you, thick, usually yeah, yeah, hunting. just it's going to be a thick area, um, and usually near bedding, but not like in bedding. Like, for instance, um, a place that I've found a decent amount of sheds that's kind of strange is uh, kind of some old regrowth from old pastures that's now just a huge thicket of uh like cedar elms and winged elms that are all you know browse line and i think what that is it's just that's the time of year that deer are going in there and eating those buds on those elm trees and it's just a huge food source and that's why they're dropping in there Mm -hmm. that's the only correlation i can really tell you for around here and well i found sheds on fence crossings a few times too 
But right. otherwise, yep. you know, that's about that's about it. And yeah. I'm by no means do we find a bunch of sheds. You know, it's just we're kind of like you. I don't think our due densities are quite as low, but on public, they're they're not very high. Mm-hmm. You know, the, right. we've got these little pockets of deer, and usually it's around golf courses. You know, but because <laughs> people <laughs> yeah. feed them. But, that's no lie. But uh, you know, in in the in the country, you know, out on public land and stuff, it's pretty low densities. And you know how it is trying to find sheds on low density stuff. You oh, know, yeah. what do y'all key yeah. on for sheds? I mean, we try to focus, like in hill country, we fly, try to focus on those southeast facing slopes. Yeah. Typically, that's where, you know, they're trying to gain that, that uh, the thermal heat from the sun or where they're exposed to the sun for the longest periods of time. Um, so we try to focus our efforts in areas like that and stuff that has, you know, uh, like you said, high stem count for high thermal cover and, and browse areas. But, um, I don't know. Maybe we're just we're just terrible at it. We just <laughs> don't have very much luck. Yeah. I don't know, man. It, honestly, like anytime Tyler and I have gone shed hunting in Texas, we don't find much. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, it's it's just a boots on the ground situation. So what we do to have the most success, uh, kind of just post season, and really this is just all around hunting, is just hit the woods um, with backpacks and some water and some snacks and some trail cameras and just scout and you'll find a few sheds one day uh the next day you'll find a good place to put some cameras or the next time you'll find like a good spot to hang stands in november you know you just can't when i think whenever you hunt terrain like ours that isn't the stereotypical bed to feed good ag field high deer densities you can't go out there with these really specific um goals you know, you have to you have to hit the woods with an open mind and and take what the woods give you. And maybe maybe I'm approaching that wrong. I don't know, but I just feel like if you're going to try to have some success and find something good, you got to have your eyes open to the good stuff all the time. You can't just be looking for buck beds all mm-hmm. the time. You know what I mean? That's a great point, man. No, I I couldn't agree with that more. Um, and we've kind of learned that lesson over the you know four or five years is. You know, there would be days we would go in and say, hey, we're only going to go in and look for bedding. And then you get caught in these wormholes and, um, you know, you might be focusing on travel corridors or, you know, you might find something down on the bottom that you have interest in. And at the end of the day, you're like, oh, I thought we were supposed to look for, for buck beds. <laughs> it feels like you've lost. But in reality, you know, as you said, if you have an open mind and just take what to, take what the woods gives you, uh, you're, you know you're a lot more successful and you feel, you know, you feel like you've actually accomplished something at the end of the day. So that's a, that's an awesome point. <laughs> yeah. yeah no <laughs> that feeling of accomplishment doesn't come very often on public land, as you know. So when you get it, it's nice. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you see yourself going out of state anytime soon to hunt public? Or are you like, I'm going to, I'm going to kill a deer here and I'm going back to some cornfields in Ohio. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, we, as far as, you know, company wise um we have set set aside some time to do a little more hunting this year it's hard for us because we're you know we are a small company there's five of us here and uh you know my my work ethic and my mentality on things is you know if there's work to be done you got to do it and regardless of you know what what you want to do like you got to take care of the business that's the baby that's the that's what's feeding your family um so a lot of times you know i don't spend enough time um in, in the woods doing those those types of things so yeah definitely have uh have some things penciled in for the year um gonna hunt turkeys in ohio public land cool and then uh when you know when deer season rolls around um we're thinking about possibly kansas maybe nebraska um and then i'd like to get down to down to kentucky um and do some things oh yeah 
do, they, do some things across Kentucky the looks awesome. We saw deer all over the place whenever we were headed up for ATA this year. Like, we crossed the, the line into Kentucky, and it's like deer, 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 deer everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, and there's some great pieces of uh, there's some great pieces of public. Um, two years ago, I spent some time in that in the in the Daniel Boone um, National Forest, which is uh, in the eastern, I guess, northern eastern part of the state. Yeah. Um, and it's just just the terrain, super cool. Um, so yeah, I I definitely want to get down there. Cool, dude. Yeah, that's cool. Well, it sounds good. So, what's the best place for uh, people to to uh, find out more about the render camera and whatever else you got going on? Yeah, um, everything that we have going on, you can you can learn about uh, on our website exodusoutdoorgear.com, um, Exodus Trail Cameras on Instagram and Facebook, um, and then uh, there's lots of lots of beneficial <clears throat> informed blog articles on the website um, that talk about you know we talk we do we do our best to educate people on on trail cameras and not you know the things that we do they're not always hard selling um there's these devices there's so much there's so much marketing jargon going to talk across the industry and how these things are sold to people a lot of people are buying products that they don't understand um how they're built so our you know that's kind of our focus mm-hmm. is just you know trying to educate people regardless of what camera or what company they decide to support right right that's awesome man well we'll link to that in the show notes here so if you're interested make sure you go Check out the show notes here below and uh, find those links. Be easy for you. Chad, I appreciate uh, the knowledge, man, and just the uh, the camaraderie that we kind of share around hunting big wood situations, man. It's uh, We kind of we, we share the same struggle, man, and it's real. I love it, man. I love it. <laughs> love what you guys are doing. Love it. I, I know that it almost feels like there's like two or three uh, old – I don't know, kindred, kindred spirits like coming together whenever we chat. And we've only talked a few times, but uh, love love your guys' attitude and your work ethic and how you guys are doing things. So. Yeah, sure, man. Thanks, brother. Back at you, man. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking more throughout the spring. I hope you hope you find a big shed, man. <laughs> <laughs> you too. All right, we'll see you, Chad. All right, see you. Well, like you kind of said in the intro, I think Chad is like a super relatable guy. Like, not everybody's going out and getting it done every year. I mean, we put a lot of time in this year. I felt like we have learned a lot over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, we had we did have some public land encounters that kind of didn't go our way that were in bow range, you know. Uh, but, you know, here in our home state, there really wasn't a whole lot of encounters that were within bow range. Yeah. It, I mean, there was a couple maybe. And luckily one was a spike that you got to shoot, you know. And so um, – I think that's that like I can relate to Chad personally. I'm sure a lot of the listeners can too. I mean, it, especially if you're that guy that gets one week of AK, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So uh it's it doesn't always happen for you. So don't be discouraged, you know. Let let these stories um uh, and the of these guys that we have on lift you up and and let you know that like um it's it's the process, right? Like yeah. it's it's the process you got to fall in love with and and knowing that you're getting better every day and that you're going to eventually have that encounter. It just may take a little more time, another year or two, you know. Yeah, and so. do what makes you happy. If yeah. sitting over a corn feeder doesn't make you happy, even though you might have a chance to shoot a big deer, don't do not do that, yeah. you know. But if you want to do that, do it. You yeah. Know? And that's I think that's the thing, man, is people let um, media outlets, mm-hmm. outdoor TV, define what they think makes them happy. Yeah. And instead, go out and do what's fun for you. Yeah. Oh, that's the way it should be, man. Yeah. I mean, you're you're going out spending your hard-earned money that you have worked, you know, 
51 weeks for 50 weeks for you know i mean mm-hmm. go do what you like don't don't uh, worry about what everybody else is telling you to do so um i would say as we wrap this up if you guys want to if you haven't yet if you want to give us a review on itunes that is super helpful for us we can use all the help we can get we're starting to get kicked back into the into the whitetail deer thing here it's taken us a while we've uh we've been since christmas we've kind of been uh just wanting to enjoy family uh you've been wanting to work very hard <laughs> got stuff to pay for <laughs> yeah and so um uh, anyway we um we're starting to get back into this stuff hopefully you can find this stuff helpful we've got more whitetail podcasts on the way and um yeah, I mean, like I said, a review would be super helpful for us to keep uh, exposing these guys that are just normal guys, everyday blue collar type type of guys like us. Um, and like I said, don't forget if you um, are interested in any of the camera stuff, um, Exodus has a lot of good info on just camera stuff. You know, that's mm-hmm. all. Like he said, that's all. That's what they try to do is help people out and uh, help them understand cameras better and the technology. That goes around it. Uh, they want things to be user-friendly, so go check them out. The website's uh, here in in uh, the links down below in the description. So, Anything else, KC? Go kill a deer, dude. I'm going to do it, man. All right. All right, man. Well, y'all, y'all have a great week. Stay warm. God bless, and enjoy the outdoors. Remember, this is your element. Live in it. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.